0: Hello, my name is James, and I host the Timur Podcast, a show that covers the life, character, conquests, and legacy of the infamous 14th century emir known as Timur, or Temur, or Tamerlane, or simply Timur. This Timur is remembered for being a brilliant tactician, a general who supposedly never lost a battle, a great patron of the arts, and one of the most brutal conquerors who has ever lived. From about 1365 to 1405, Timur was almost constantly at war, building himself an empire that stretched from modern-day Turkey to India, from Syria to the Russian steppe, and I want to know how and why this happened. If that sounds interesting to you, then check out my show, The Timur Podcast. Find out more at timurpodcast.com, or listen to it in most places where you find podcasts. And with that said, start the music. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 5, Homecoming. back to Pax Britannica. Over the last two episodes, we've covered how the Lord Deputy of Ireland, Sir Thomas Wentworth, went about achieving his main objectives in that kingdom. To make the Treasury self-sufficient, to make the Church of Ireland more like the Church of England, and to make the Irish more like the English. In his pursuit of these aims, Wentworth antagonised nearly every faction in Irish society. The New English, the Old English or Anglo-Irish, the Old Irish or Gaelic Irish, the Ulster Scots, the Catholics, Church of Ireland conformists, and Presbyterians. Despite this, Wentworth's rule in Ireland did meet with some success. Financially, the treasury was healthy enough that it no longer needed English subsidies to stay afloat, and instead could return the favour for the first time in living memory. Yet, the consequences of these policies will make themselves known over the next few episodes. Today, we will cross back across the Irish Sea to examine Charles's third kingdom, Scotland. This was the Stuarts' ancestral realm, and they had been kings of Scots for almost two and a half centuries by the reign of Charles. Their dynastic name, Stuart, came about from their ancient office as High stewards of Scotland. Charles himself had been born in Scotland before his father inherited the thrones of England and Ireland. By birth and by descent, he was as Scottish a king as any. Unfortunately, there were many Scots who did not see Charles this way. Sure, he had been born in Fife, but he'd only lived in Scotland until he was three and a half years old. At that point, he followed his father and siblings south to London. He would not return to Scotland until he was in his thirties, and eight years into his own reign, and it was obvious to all that those few years in Scotland were no match for the thirty in England. When he did finally return to Edinburgh, his stay was brief and controversial. Yet again, we have to compare Charles to his father. Like his son, James became an absentee king of Scots after his journey south. He returned once in 1617, but this was a far cry from his promises to visit every few years. Yet James had the advantage of having ruled in person in Scotland for decades. He had been king since he was a year old, and had ruled in his own right for more than 20 years before Elizabeth died. Thus, when he went south, he had the necessary personal connections to make an absentee monarchy viable. He knew his subjects, and he knew his lords. He boasted that he could rule Scotland by the pen, when prior kings had been forced to rule it by the sword. How would James have felt if he'd known his son would have to fall back on the old ways? James's connection with his kingdom inevitably waned over the years. People he knew died, and were succeeded by those he had never met, and one quick visit was not going to fix that. He also faced resistance to his own religious policies, though obviously not to the same level which his son would face. But he had enough goodwill, enough legitimacy as a true King of Scots, that the notoriously fractious politics of Scotland were more or less held in check during his absence. This is not to say that there were no issues with James being absent, but it was kept under control. Not so for Charles. Toddlers, even royal ones, are not particularly adept at the cut and thrust of court politics, and so obviously Charles did not leave Scotland with the reputation and legitimacy his father enjoyed. Of course, he was not unknown in Scotland, as Scottish elites exchanged letters with the court and visited in person, but such a distance was a serious disadvantage in the deeply personal nature of early modern politics. Anyone would have struggled with this handicap, whether they were a supremely gifted wordsmith and diplomat, or just someone like Charles Stuart. Charles became King of Scots in 1625 with the death of his father, and in the view of foreign ambassadors, the relationship between England and Scotland immediately cooled. James had managed to maintain the balance of being a Scottish and an English king, partly through his own skills, and partly because of the existing relationships he had with his Scottish subjects. Many Scots now worried that where Scotland had remained ruled by a Scottish king, his heir was too thoroughly anglicised. Think back to the first episodes of last season. James's ambition to formally merge England and Scotland into a single kingdom of Great Britain had failed due to the opposition in both kingdoms the Scots had been terrified at the thought of simply becoming another province of England, annexed and forced into dependency, such as happened in Wales and Ireland. Therefore, any union tolerable to the Scots would have had to be on the basis of equality, a truly united kingdom. The English vigorously opposed any such equality. Wales and Ireland had entered their orbit through the domination of the stronger England. Union could only be envisaged in this context, and Scotland would have to be subservient to London. There was no feasible way to bring these opposing, intractable viewpoints together, and James had had to settle for just calling himself King of Great Britain while his subjects simply ignored the title. That had been under James, who was indisputably a Scottish king who just happened to be sitting on the English throne. In the worried minds of many of his Scottish subjects, Charles was a different matter. For much of his English reign, James had kept Scottish courtiers close. The English Privy Council remained majority English, satisfying the concerns of his English courtiers, but it was the King's bedchamber where real influence could be found and wielded, and that was dominated by Scots. Charles did not maintain this balance. However, when this was brought up, the new king dismissed their concerns, a proposal that Charles employ a Scottish secretary within his household was refused. The king simply said that he was born a Scot and would bear for Scotland the same affection as his father. That affection appeared to mirror his father's policies, especially regarding the Kirk. James had sought to reform the Scottish church more to his liking, with the Five Articles of Perth, and through careful appointments. These had not been popular, and it was hoped that the new King of Scots would reconsider this approach. However, as we've seen repeatedly, Charles took the view that if it was good enough for his father, it was good enough for him. He issued a proclamation praising the church reforms of his father, saying that if they hadn't already existed, he would have implemented them. If this wasn't enough, He echoed his father once again and lumped Catholics and Presbyterians together as restless and unquiet spirits. This was not the sympathetic line that many Scots had hoped for. Of course, one of Charles' first acts as king was to go to war with Spain, and this meant that Scotland also went to war with Spain. As Harris puts it, quote, the Scots were allowed no meaningful influence over shaping what was essentially an English foreign policy. The Convention of Estates, an assembly similar to a parliament but not quite, met in October 1625 and loyally granted their new king an annual tax of 400,000 Scottish pounds, which converted to around 33,000 English, along with some other revenues. However, they rejected Charles' suggestion that they fund a set number of ships and soldiers for three years, as they were concerned about the precedent that would be set. As we will see next episode, thousands of Scots would go and fight, and even after a peace was signed, many would stay and continue to fight. In another of his first acts as king, Charles instituted a Scottish tradition a revocation. This was a right of the Scottish crown to revoke any titles or grants made while the king had been in his minority, a sort of safety net to prevent overly exploitative regencies. Scottish history is chock full of them. James had ordered three revocations during his time in Scotland, and these revocations could be made at any time before the king turned 25. Charles would turn 25 in November 1625, and he only became king in March, leaving him only a few months to set these affairs in order. Never mind that Charles had not had a minority, this was an opportunity he could not pass up. The limited amount of time he had meant that the King only consulted with courtiers in London, some of whom were Scottish, but had long been absent. So, when the revocation was brought before the Scottish Privy Council, just before Charles's 25th birthday, they'd received no warning. While this was very short notice, it was the scope of this revocation that angered his subjects. Charles claimed the right to overturn every grant of royal land since 1540, and applied this to disputed church lands too. Almost a century of grants were now at risk. This was a vast expansion on previous revocations, though Charles had his reasons. Obviously, this would be a great boost to the church's income. It would also mean that church lands were returned to the church, Boosting their assets in the same manner that Lord and Wentworth would do in England and Ireland. It would also break the hold of the nobility over vast numbers of lesser gentry and peasantry, something which James had written about extensively. Whether or not Charles's motives were justified, the scale of the intervention and his manner of enforcing it were fiercely resented. A parliament was meant to agree to a revocation. Charles had simply imposed it by his will. The nobility naturally opposed any attack on their property, and this was only worsened by the king's refusal to follow normal procedures, or to explain himself. His methods seemed so arbitrary, and his motivation so obscure, that even many of those subjects who would benefit from the revocation, the clergy and the gentry, opposed it. Eventually, news of this resentment filtered south, and Charles sweetened his demands by offering compensation in July 1626. Not only was this far too late to improve the reception of the revocation, but the compensation was slow to be agreed, and even slower to be paid. After all, the crown was hardly swimming in money. The damage had been done. Charles had made his first impression as King of Scots and in the wise words of fridge magnets across the globe you never get a second chance to make a first impression charles became king of scots immediately on the death of his father as was the way however he had not been crowned he promised to travel to scotland in the summer of 1628 to hold his coronation and to summon a parliament unfortunately affairs in england delayed this for 5 years So, it was only in 1633, eight years after he was proclaimed King of Scots, that Charles underwent his coronation. Finally, the Scots had their king back. Except, not quite. The visit was a public relations disaster. Before Charles even reached the border, he had reinforced his reputation as an enemy of Calvinists and a supporter of ceremonialists. On his royal progress north, he refused to hear sermons from local clergy if they were Puritan, and apparently had people whipped for presenting a petition from their Puritan minister. In Durham, he had his new chaplain sworn in, a suspected Arminian who had been denounced in Parliament. Once Charles finally reached Edinburgh, his arrival was celebrated with genuine warmth. Their king had returned. The procession was elaborate the king riding under an arch celebrating the victory of justice and religion over superstition and oppression while onlookers cheered and drank to his health and then there was the coronation and charles's religious position was made explicitly clear the ceremony took place in holyrood kirk which had been prepared to laudian standards the communion table had been moved to the east and railed off a finely decorated tapestry hung behind it woven with the crucifix and candles were everywhere. This would put the Presbyterian attendees on edge, and then Charles entered. As he entered, he kneeled. Kneeled! One can only imagine the reaction of the Presbyterians in the congregation. Kneeling was, after all, a stipulation of the hated five Articles of Perth, and some still held out hope that Charles would get rid of them. And here he was, performing one of them, At his own coronation. After kneeling, the king climbed the dais where Archbishop Lord stood, alongside six Scottish bishops, dressed in the manner of the Church of England. Whenever they passed the altar, they bowed. The service itself followed the English Book of Common Prayer, and the coronation oath had been amended to include a protection of the clergy's privileges and to defend the episcopacy. Even ceremonialists in attendance thought that all of this was a little bit too provocative. Celebrations and bonfires spread through the streets after the ceremony, but it had been made very clear that Charles was not going to roll back the Jacobean reforms. Instead, he was going to go further. The coronation was only part of the reason for the king's visit. Again, It was only in England where personal rule was a feature of Charles' reign, and to accompany his coronation, a parliament was summoned. However, a Scottish parliament was an entirely different animal from its English counterpart. For starters, it was smaller, and it only sat for a few weeks. This made it much more controllable, as it turned out to be in this case. It also had a committee named the Lords of the Articles, which handled a lot of the business of actually drafting legislation for the rest of Parliament to vote on. The Coronation Parliament sat from the 18th to the 28th of June, 1633, and as in England and Ireland, the government went out of its way to ensure the King's agenda would receive a positive reception. Known allies of the Crown were supported in their elections, and five English lords were summoned due to also holding Scottish titles. They had no Scottish lands to go with the Scottish titles, and so this was blatantly against procedure. Grievances to be brought before Parliament were ordered to be submitted ahead of time, and the man in charge of receiving them, the Clerk Register, could refuse to receive them. The Clerk Register in this case was Sir John Hay, a strong supporter of the Episcopacy, and so petitions and complaints about the bishops tended to go nowhere. One petitioner got around this by going directly to the King at Dalkeith Castle, and while Charles did thoroughly and respectfully read the petition, it never made it to Parliament. Petitions and other proposed topics had to proceed through the Lords of the Articles, and Charles sat in on many of these meetings personally. If this was not enough to ensure firm control of the Assembly, the Estates of Scotland were forbidden to communicate, No cooperation between them would be permitted. Votes were bought ahead of time, with gifts and promises made to those who could be swayed, while vocal opponents were threatened into submission. Oh, and those members of Parliament who were also officers of state? Well, they got an extra vote, because of course. After all of this, on the 27th of June, the Lords of the Articles presented 168 items for voting on. Not to debate, but to vote on, and as a total package. Members were meant to simply vote, yes or no, in the open, without an opportunity to discuss it, or to explain their reasoning. Oh, and the king was sat in the room, blatantly and deliberately making notes of members who voted against him. If that wasn't enough, Charles would occasionally voice his opinions with a great deal of spleen and in case the theatrical note-taking hadn't got the message across, at one point Charles brandished the list of names to the room. Gentlemen, I'll know who will do me service and who will not this day. The items included approving the 1625 revocation, greater taxation, and the religious legislation of James. Despite all of this, despite the intimidation, the bribery, the filtering of the Clerk Register and the Lords of the Articles, despite stuffing Parliament with yes-men, despite the presence of the King himself glaring ominously at dissenters, the vote was close. In the end, Charles only won on the votes of his bishops, which did nothing to improve their reputation as anything other than lackeys of the Crown. The next day, Parliament was dissolved. The King's agenda had been satisfied, but now the members dispersed back home, with fresh grievances against the king many of them had only just met. Charles then went on a royal progress, and he did his best to steer clear of those he knew would be displeased with the events of Parliament. In the aftermath, a supplication signed by more than half of the lords at that Parliament explained in detail why they and others had voted against the king's agenda, despite their ingenious affection for him. It explicitly condemned the five articles, and described, now a general fear of some innovation intended in essential points of religion. Charles, doing his best ostrich impression, refused to receive the supplication, because after all, what use could there possibly be in knowing the views of his critics? Despite the king's head being firmly buried in the sand, the supplication did not go away. It was privately circulated, copies were made, and eventually it reached the king anyway. Archbishop Spottiswood of St Andrews reported it to Charles, and now the king could not ignore it. What had been a private attempt to justify opposition to royal policy had now, despite the wishes of its authors, become a public attack, on Charles's kingly authority, that this was only because of Charles's refusal to read it was irrelevant. The original author, the lawyer William Hague, fled Scotland to the Netherlands to dodge an arrest warrant. The copy of the supplication was traced back to John Elphinstone, the Lord Balmerino. Balmerino did not flee, and the king ordered him seized for publishing and distributing seditious material. He was convicted of treason. With all the consequences that had. This naturally caused outrage. The episcopacy was blamed by the nobility for this attack on one of their number, and the overseeing officer of the trial suggested that it might not be wise to execute him for such a popular, though unintended, crime. This advice was followed, and Balmerino was pardoned, but the damage had already been done. Now, parliament's reluctance to pass charles's agenda had been made public and the king had tried to shoot the messenger that he diverted his aim at the last second didn't change that but charles was not done yet he had one last thing to do to ensure his homecoming was one of the worst in history again the crooks if you'll pardon the pun was religion he made edinburgh an episcopal see appointed an ardent ceremonialist, William Forbes, as its first bishop, and made St. Giles Kirk his cathedral. He intended to smother the fiercely Presbyterian nature of Edinburgh in preparation for greater reforms of the Kirk. What happened instead was this was seen as a blatantly provocative act. Not only did this mean Scotland gained yet another bishop. When many were crying out against the episcopacy in its entirety, but Charles strengthened the role of bishops in government. Spottiswood, Archbishop of St Andrews, was made Chancellor, and five more bishops were appointed to the Privy Council. Not only did this provoke critics of the episcopacy, but many of the Scottish nobility saw these positions as their birthright. Now, they were simultaneously alienated from the bishops, and without being in government, lost a reason to support it. Charles then went home, patting himself on the back for a job well done. However, all the way to the border, he heard a strange sound. If he'd looked back, he would have realised it was the sound of his Scottish subjects repeatedly and zealously slapping their foreheads in disbelief. Charles' experience in Scotland doesn't appear to have done anything to dampen his desire to bring the Scottish Church closer to the English. Before the end of the year, he had ordered a Scottish edition of the Book of Common Prayer to be used by Scottish bishops, and in the Chapel Royal, in the Royal Palace of Falkland. The bishops managed to delay this, and in October 1634, it was decided that a new book of church services, as well as a new set of Kirk canons, would be compiled. Once again, Charles backed up his decision by drawing on the actions of his father, A general assembly had gathered in Aberdeen in 1616 and had called for both, and once again, James had been more circumspect. It was a controversial initiative, and James hadn't pushed the issue. But of course, Charles did. The new prayer book was meant to be as close to the Book of Common Prayer as possible, in contrast to the proposed Jacobean text. The work was led by Bishops Maxwell and Wedderburn, and took two years to complete, while Charles constantly ordered modifications. The final product tried to be as similar to the English book as possible, while doing what it could not to upset the Presbyterians too much. Basically, it tried to bring together two mutually exclusive aims. Any attempt to make the Kirk more like the Church of England would be offensive to presbyterian feelings while anything wholly acceptable to them would bear little resemblance to the southern church as it was the kirk found issue with several phrases which had been carried over from the prayer book of edward the 6th and from pre-reformation practice to add insult to yet more insult both the prayer book and the new canons were drafted and agreed without any semblance of a general assembly of the kirk they were written by royal order, and they would be imposed by royal order. So, in January 1636, the new canons were published. These new church rules would not have looked out of place in Lordian England or Wentworth's Ireland. Specific Scottish elements, such as reinforcing the five articles of Perth, were some of the few markers that this was actually intended for the Church of Scotland. It would take another year and a half for the new prayer book to be introduced, There were delays in its printing, and many parishes couldn't afford it, or were otherwise resistant to using it. The synods, which had copies, complained about it relentlessly, citing popish errors, and some bishops used kiddie gloves in implementing it, giving their ministers several months to come to a decision. How much of these difficulties were reported back to Charles is unclear. Harris suggests that most of it was withheld from the king by those who knew he didn't appreciate bad news. Perhaps the Scottish Privy Council believed that if they were patient and took their time, and no one did anything rash, then unrest could be avoided and it would all go, oh god, the king's only gone and ordered the new book used, hasn't he? On the orders of Charles, the Bishop of Edinburgh issued a proclamation on the 16th of July, 1637, that the new prayer book would be used throughout the diocese for the next Sunday service. Next time, we will see how that decision went down like a lead balloon, or more aptly, though perhaps more mythologically, like a wooden stool. Thank you to James from the Timmer podcast for the introduction to today's episode. Go check out his show on one of the most famous yet still often overlooked conquerors in world history. After all, we've seen his legacy in Pax Britannica. His descendants established the Great Mughal Empire, which the East India Company is currently trying to court, and which it would one day destroy. If you want to know how that story begins, then you have to start with Tamerlane. So, go listen to the Timur podcast everywhere you find good podcasts. That's Timur. T-I-M-U-R. Thank you to my House of Lords The King's Favourite, Andrew Shoemaker, The Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersage, the Royal Headsman, Executed Today, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Marquess of Hereford, Christopher Remo, the Marquis of Queensbury, Brent Sitz, the Marquis of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, Marquis of Dorset, Thomas Kessler, the Marquess of Annandale, Duncan McHale, the Marquess of Montague, Brandon Stansbury, Evan, Marquis of Londonderry, and now, joining their ranks since last episode, we have Bruce Simmons, the Earl of Argyll, Paul Trefazu, who, despite being a former member of the House of Lords, I still don't know how to pronounce his surname, he is now Viscount of Kent, Viscount Jackson, Liz, Baroness Glanz, and the King's favourite, Mike Saunders. Yes, the King now has two favourites, I didn't expect anyone to pledge to this tier, much less two people, and I'm completely blown away. I'm going to see what I can do about creating some Patreon-exclusive content to reward the generosity of my House of Lords. I'm also in the process of getting a hold of some Pax Britannica merch. This has all become a little bit more difficult in recent days. For those of you who aren't aware, I live in Aberdeen, Scotland, and a couple of days ago, uh, Aberdeen went into a local lockdown because of the virus, so... Um, everything's back to the way it was about four months ago. Now, I'm fine, I'm not at risk or anything like that, it just means that going to the post office has become a little bit more tricky, and a lot of shops have gone back to being closed. Anyway, thanks once again to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for the music used in today's episode, to James for the guest introduction to today's episode, absolutely go check out the Timmer podcast, and as always, to you for listening.